0: We are starting off, though, taking a look at a report that was released earlier today. This was released by the BC Ombudsperson, and it takes a look at how BC's Ministry of Children and Family Development misinformed a former youth in care, and this was about the impact of a custody transfer and how even now that that misinformation has become public, there has been a refusal to compensate the youth for that mistake. The report is called Misinformed, and BC's Ombudsperson Jay Chalk is joining me now to talk more about this. Thank you so much for being with us.
1: Good afternoon, Jill.
0: Good afternoon. Uh, Can you talk a little bit more about what happened in this case? Misinformed is your report talking about a young woman by the name of Alexandra and she was given incorrect information but can you give us a bit more background on how this came to your office to be investigated and what you were looking at?
1: Absolutely. So, uh, Alexandra came to us and uh, told us uh, um, what had happened to her in her experience with the ministry, uh, and what it uh, uh, related to uh, was a particular form of court process that uh, has been put in over the past couple of decades uh, to, as an expedited way for when someone is in the care of the ministry for that care to be transferred uh, to an extended family member, next of kin, um, or someone with whom the child or youth has uh, some pre-existing relationship but because it's an expedited process the act puts in some statutory safeguards and so ensuring that those statutory safeguards are observed becomes extra important because it's an expedited process so um, uh, we investigated uh, and what happened well, in her case was that um, she and her aunt knew that alexandra was very interested in um, pursuing post-secondary and the ministry had said that they uh, We're going. They were intending to apply to the provincial court for this expedited order to transfer custody to the aunt. Uh, And so, our aunt specifically asked the social worker, um, "Would uh, Alexandra be eligible for the public um, uh, financial supports that uh, go to children in care when they turn 19?" Um, uh, The ministry social worker said she should be eligible, um, but uh, she would check and get back uh, to them. But they never did. Uh, There there was no uh, follow-up. And so the only information that Alexander and her aunt had was that she should be eligible. Um, They consented on that basis. The court made the order. uh, And then a few years later, when she applied for that support, she was told she was ineligible because that transfer had made her ineligible for two particular programs uh, that provide that kind of support for um, someone attending post-secondary. Everything other than tuition, uh, but including tuition, but also all the associated costs.
0: And did it explain why? Was it because she was being transferred to a family member or because it was expedited? Did she get a, a reason as to why the social worker said, yes, you should be eligible, but it turned out that she wasn't?
1: The the um, the ministry was planning uh, and preparing to uh, apply for this order, so the ministry knew well the, the type of application. Um, the social worker simply made a mistake uh, in informing uh, Alexandra's aunt uh, as to the... Uh, her eligibility should that order go through. So, you know, for me, uh, a public body can make a mistake, uh, but when it's brought to their attention, uh, we expect, and I think the public expects that um, they're going to do the things we teach our kids to do, which is to step up and and uh, uh, and make make uh, make it right. And, uh, and however, in this case, they've declined uh, to compensate her. We also it raised the question for us whether there were other kids who um, uh, had had. Uh, not receive correct information, but the other thing that had happened to uh, Alexandra was she hadn't been afforded the opportunity to obtain independent legal advice, and that's another of those safeguards, Uh, and um, uh, that's embodied in ministry policy and in the provincial court rules, so uh, that didn't happen either, and so we wanted to know whether this had happened to anyone else, and so we, we suggested to the ministry that uh, they conduct an audit uh, of uh, of their transfers under this section, and they've rejected that recommendation as well. So, uh, two, um, I think, really important things to ensure that a ministry that's uh, whose job it is to act in the best interests of the children in its care, uh, and unfortunately, they've declined to do either.
0: When they declined to do that, did they give any reason, or did anybody with the ministry say, "Well, we are not going to do this. We decline this, and, and here's why."
1: Well, the ministry has cited other programs, other financial programs that actually don't benefit Alexandra uh, 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 that as evidence that uh, uh, they're supporting um, uh, uh, kids who uh, are former kids in care who want to pursue post-secondary, but those just don't apply to her. And so uh, they're really ir- irrelevant for her purposes. Also, she was misled uh, uh, as to the consequences of that order. And I think that that's important to keep in mind. Um, but one thing they did say the ministry staff said to us that they couldn't do this audit that we were suggesting to go and look for other cases because they didn't have confidence in their own record keeping and I think that that's a pretty troubling admission uh, um, but but equally impact impact even maybe more troubling is you know the fact that they're not looking even though they really have this obligation to act in best interests, and surely uh, this ministry is one where we would expect them to engage in continuous improvement. A mistake is pointed out, let's go find out the the breadth and scope of it and let's make it right and let's figure out a way that this doesn't happen again. And uh, so going and finding the people and looking at all the various factual circumstances that led to those errors for all those kids, To whom they owed a a duty uh, is something that I would have expected they would have done.
0: Because with the lack then of record keeping and and then not doing an audit, and like you said, this is one case, there are likely others. Do you have any idea potentially how many other cases there could be that would be similar to this?
1: We don't. um, uh, The... uh, and that 's why we were encouraging the audit. Um, uh, hundreds of cases uh, have uh, have gone through this section and, and been the subject of applications under this section. Uh, uh, the, um, the representative for children and youth, uh, one of my independent officer colleagues, did a report a number of years ago that pointed out that you know many hundreds of, of kids have gone through this section and uh, or have gone through court applications under this section and and many of those kids, a disproportionate number um, uh, of those children were indigenous because uh, that, uh, because for so many years the only way to uh, uh, transfer care and custody was through formal guardianship applications in the supreme court this new expedited scheme was seen as a a less intrusive measure uh, and uh, uh, and so it's particular and so has been used uh, uh, disproportionately in respect of uh, indigenous children and that's what the RCY found so um, I think it's uh you know, it's something that bears close look
0: because looking at at this case as well and in the background in your report it goes into some pretty pretty uh, d- good detail and it talks about Alexandra and the abuse that she suffered what she came from and the th- thread through this that her desire to go to post secondary school uh, when when reading this report it just you read it and think okay this this person has overcome a very very difficult beginning she found a place with her aunt she she made it very clear that she wanted to when she was ready to go to post-secondary. And then to have this happen, I mean, uh, th- not that it comes down only to cost, but th- the cost of, of paying for Alexandra to go to post-secondary, the, the investment that that has in her future seems like that is that is the best case scenario for everybody involved.
1: Yeah, she's an inspiring young woman. In fact, she she did, notwithstanding the government's refusal, she decided to... Uh, make it work somehow, and pursued uh, uh, what her dream was. But, but one of the reasons we wanted the government to look at all the other cases is it's very likely um, uh, other people who, because of this lack of public financing, if it did occur in their cases, uh, you know, wouldn't have been able to. So um, I think there'll be a whole variety of circumstances that one can see. Um, and uh, uh, you know, it's really disappointing that uh, the government uh, isn't curious enough to, uh, to go look.
0: Is it also the the wording and and in the email that that is part of this report from the social worker, the wording in that even says regarding school support uh, that she should qualify for some support to attend post-secondary. It's not it's not overly committal uh, committed language. Is that a problem, too, in that if you're telling somebody that you need to be you need to be either. Yes, you are eligible. Yes, you are going to get funding or no, you're not.
1: I think it's reasonable for uh, a reasonable thing for the public to expect that the ministry staff will properly know and uh, apply ministry policy uh, and um, provide accurate information at a pivotal point um, where uh, where someone is faced with this sort of fork in the road kind of decision. Uh, and uh, and if they learn that they've uh, they've they misinformed someone, then they should correct that right away. Uh, and do so in time uh, before the court application so um, you know, I think that's uh, an important thing that uh, the that ministry staff uh, know what the policies are uh,
0: you mentioned the the ministry then saying it, it will not be doing an audit part of that because of a lack of, of proper records to be do to do that uh, audit your first recommendation in this report also though is to calculate the funds that Alexandra would have been eligible for and to share that with your office did you get any indication that the ministry is going Going to do that?
1: No, the ministry has declined to compensate her, uh, and so that's something that I'm renewing my call for them to, uh, uh, to do today uh, and, uh, and ensure that she is made whole, um, uh, and I think that that's uh, a perfectly reasonable thing uh, for her to do. The other thing I would say is that um, um, I think that Uh, independent oversight of these, um, uh, uh, the ministry's role in applying for these sections could be strengthened. Uh, And we've suggested that uh, a body that already is involved in in a a number of very similar court applications by the ministry, uh, uh, the public guardian and trustee, be served with these kinds of applications. Their job is to make sure that the financial interests of young people are protected. um, And the Act just doesn't provide... Uh, for the PGT to be involved, unless the PGT is already the guardian, well, in these case in this case the PGt and in most cases of temporary custody in the ministry, the PGT is not the guardian, and so we think it 's a pretty simple matter to serve them. Um, they can conduct a review, and if they're of the view that the matter that uh, uh, that uh, the application is in the financial interests uh, of the young person, they can advise the provincial court of that. Uh, the PGT has advice-giving roles in lots of other British Columbia statutes, where they provide advice to the court when the court is going to make a decision that can impact the financial interests of a young person. So um, uh, we think it's a, a fairly straightforward and and, and uh, understandable thing that should happen. The PGT itself, a few years ago, called for uh, um, uh, uh, strengthening of the financial interests of, uh, uh, of, of children uh, who are not under continuing custody orders, like uh, like Alexandra. So, uh, um, uh, I would hope that they would uh, take another look at that recommendation as well.
0: And uh, you kind of answered this, but I was curious: Does the the PGT, the Public Guardian and Trustee, uh, is there enough uh, bodies? Are, are there enough? Is that office big enough that it could actually do this? That it could be more involved and 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 make a difference, or or that they've expressed uh, concerns and would like to be involved.
1: So the PGT, as they said a couple of years ago in their annual report, called for that. Um, uh, and, uh, uh, and as for the resources, I think that's a discussion that uh, uh, the PGT and government should have. I will say that we uh, said in our report that we would expect government to provide Uh, the PGT with any adequate resources that it uh, required uh, in order to carry out a role that they carry out under many, many other laws already. So it's really an extension of an existing function that they have.
0: Jay Chalk, thank you so much for this, uh, for this report and for taking us through uh, the finer points of it. Appreciate your time today.
1: Anytime, Joe.
0: Wednesday afternoon, and that means it is time to check in with Claire Newell, founder and president of Travel Best Bets. Good afternoon to you.
2: Good afternoon, Jill. And wow, 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 is it busy? <laughs> you know, as soon as the kids get back in school, things just kind of light up here at Travel Best Bets, that's for sure. Um, and I know I normally send you all notes, but I, and I definitely don't want to throw you a curveball, but I just My, my phone and email and comments from friends and family Mm -hmm. about this whole Air Canada incident about the two people who refused to sit on barf covered (gasps) seat. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't know. (laughs) I just thought we should address this because it's such a talking point. And even my kids were like, mom, what the heck? (sighs) Like, why should they go on a no fly list? Because they didn't want to sit. So this was, for those who don't know what I'm talking about, Air Canada, um, there was a flight between Vegas and Montreal, and two gals went to their seat and realized that it had been barfed on just previously, and that Air Canada had definitely tried to clean it up. And this is, you know, this is obviously something outside of the control. This type of thing happens, but they didn't want to sit there, and I don't blame them. Um, and I just, I do know that Air Canada is going to be conducting an internal review of the incident, and that they have been contacted by the affected um, or with the, the affected customers, and that it wasn't their operating procedures um, proper. It wasn't followed properly in in this case, and and I of course agree. Um, but so many people have said, well, what what should have happened, and so. Um, it, here's my opinion, Jill. I guess I'll just get yes, it. Is please. There's no way that these passengers should go on a no-fly list. Um, it sounds like that they were very reasonable and just saying that they didn't want to sit on a flight that long um, when the seats were still wet um, from a cleanup from BARF that had just happened. So it, in my opinion, it was definitely a biohazard. And if there were seats that were Uh, Available that they should have been offered them, and I don't think I think I don't think there were any available. And since there were no seats, they should have been I think treated like someone who did a voluntary bump. You know, like someone asks for a can you go on the next available flight situation. So offered seats on the next flight out, and then some compensation. Um, I'm not. I think you were away when my son voluntarily bumped and got 900 bucks in his jeans. Oh, yeah, I was. Um, nice. but Yeah, but those types of things, I think that that, that should have happened. So, um, and for those who are thinking, oh, gross, I can't believe this actually happened. I have heard all sorts of things. In fact, recently, there was a Delta flight that um, was a biohazard, and you can Google it, but it was actually diverted. They were two hours in flight and then diverted back to Atlanta because someone had um, diarrhea down the oh, no. aisle, get, oh, trying no. to get to the bathroom. So things like this happen, um, and you know, it, it's, it's kind of like weather. It's outside of the airline's control, but nobody wants to be on a flight with that type of thing down the aisle, and um, it's a biohazard. So... Hopefully, airlines offer some sort of compensation as a gesture of goodwill. I mean, because it is outside of the control, they don't have to, but my guess is they will. And of course, get everybody on the next available flight, and if they've got connections, that type of thing, but... Um, Yeah, it was just a lot. Well, and I'm glad
0: glad that you brought it up, though, because one of the questions that keeps coming up is, what are your rights as a passenger? Because I think that's where where people were thinking, I get it, the flight's full. It's not like they could have put them somewhere else, but that shouldn't mean that you have to sit in that. And as a passenger, if you're not being belligerent, you're not being rude or mean, uh, to be told, well, you either sit in it or off the plane you go and you might go on a no-fly list, it just seemed completely unreasonable. Oh, it was
2: completely unreasonable. Their their choices were leaving the plane and paying for another flight or being escorted off and placed on a no-fly list. That wasn't proper procedure and it should never, ever happen. But if this type of thing ever happens to you, and hopefully it never does, okay? It's pretty rare um, that I've heard of, but just in the last month, I've heard of three different incidents with, with bodily fluids situations. Um, so- this yeah you should never ever have to and hopefully this people would learn if this ever happens to them what to ask for but it should be I think treated like a voluntary bump
0: right right yeah that which which I think people were thinking that is what would happen and why this was so bizarre to to hear the story so hopefully the uh, the attention to it means it won't happen again but like you said if you uh, search it sadly this is something that uh, yeah it's uh, it's inevitable at times and uh, it does happen yeah,
2: I know. Um, how about a more positive note? Because yes. um, YVR has launched this cool digital tool. Um, I did check it out. It's It's pretty cool. So it's a new digital tool to get passengers to their gate on time. It's called Timeline. And you can get all the details on... Um, YVR's website, which is yvr.ca, but basically passengers can determine whether they're at risk of missing their flight by scanning a QR code and then inserting their flight number. I think it's really great. Hopefully people don't get to the airport too late that they are going to be missing flights. I always tell people better to be sitting with a TIMS Mm. once you're through security and chilling rather than try to park and get to the airport or however you're going to get there and then racing to try and get through. Lineups are long, um, but all of the lineups are available to be seen, whether it's on Katza or on YVR.ca, so that's what you should be doing. I get it. Sometimes things happen, um, but this should help people who are worried about if they're going to be able to get to a flight on time.
0: Right. I saw this too, and that's my first, maybe it was being a bit cynical, but I was hoping that people don't take this as a reason to not get to the airport earlier, thinking oh, well, it's okay now because they're going to, I can search this QR code and just get somebody to take me out of the line when that's not really what it's supposed to do. No, (laughs) no,
2: it's not. Not at all. Um, I do love YVR's website for all sorts of other digital tools though, Jill. But again, this is not to be, oh, yeah, you can get their way later. It's not that. It's just to help people um, if they're in a pickle to see if they're even going to make a flight or not.
0: Right. Okay. So that's that's at YVR, a new timeline tool. I thought this story was interesting as well and uh, makes sense. Canada is losing pilots because they're taking jobs elsewhere that pay more.
2: Yeah, and the worrying thing about this, Jill, is this could cause a cascading effect of pilots leaving from not just um, the big carriers, but also small carriers, and we'll end up with reduced frequency and service here in Canada. And it's already affecting flights, because the next headline that I sent you is Air Canada slashing six routes from Calgary this winter due to a pilot shortage. And so Air Canada did confirm that they're no longer going to be offering nonstop flights from Calgary to Ottawa, Halifax, Los Angeles, Honolulu. Cancun and Frankfurt as of the end of October. and that could that could increase. And it may not just be our candidate, it could be other airlines. And I know just uh, this morning that um, WestJet's uh, encore airline, which 400 pilots, they're going to be going to be trying to, you know, negotiate new terms. So this is this is a big worry in the back of my mind because it's a pilot shortage worldwide. And every single country is trying to lure pilots. And Air, uh, Air Canada and WestJet. I know that they're, Air Canada is negotiating right now a year earlier than expected. Um, WestJet just settled. Now one of their or under their umbrella Encore is now negotiating. This is a trend that uh, I, I you know isn't going to be going away. But what paying people more is not still not going to solve the problem. It'll stop the bleed, but it's not going to solve the problem of pilots. And you and I chatted about Flair Airlines mm-hmm. having their new program, in place called Flair Cadet. They're going to train their own people from scratch in 18 months to fly on their birds and, and have a contract that basically says, if you pass the program, you're with us and you got a job. But it's, it is a worry because it affects all of us and with canceled schedules.
0: And I was curious about that, too, and and like we talked about with Flair, but the worldwide shortage, is it that pilots are retiring? It's not like medical schools where you see the certain number of places that people can go to school and graduate. Is it that people aren't becoming pilots, or do we know why there is this worldwide shortage?
2: Yeah, it's one of those situations that kind of started with the pandemic. Lots of pilots, because all these airplanes were grounded, were kind of bought out you know or took early retirement and or left the industry completely so you've been we've been left with this shortage and i I also think that there's a barrier because of the cost the sheer cost of becoming a pilot they say is around 150 grand mm-hmm. which is just seems so like so much money for people who may say hey you know what I totally want to be a pilot I just don't have the funds to do it so hopefully the government will come, come to the table with some bursaries and scholarships to get smart people into these positions because it's a really great career. It's got great salaries. And the benefit for, I wish I was a pilot, like being able to fly all over the world um, is just amazing. There's lots and lots of perks, not just for pilots, but for in-flight crew, for airlines. So I'm hoping that this is something that in Canada, whether it's more schools, more positions available, um, bursaries and scholarships put out there, I I think that there are a lot of people who would be keen to either switch careers or start careers if they're, you know, and they're, you know, starting out. They might look to this.
0: Yeah, no, for sure. So, yeah, we'll see what happens with that. Uh, Let's talk about one more story before we get to the deals and uh, either uh, Air Canada, more trips to Europe or flying kid free.
2: I know. Jeez. Okay. I was happy to hear that Air Canada is going to be adding more flights to Europe. If this summer was any indication, so many people want to do it. But as of 2024, what their plans are is that they're going to operate 100% of what their schedule was pre-COVID. So that's really great. Um, but it was already a busy Europe season. It was also smoking hot. Um, so, you know, whether you want to go a little earlier, April, May... Uh, or September, October, that would be my suggestion if you're flexible. Uh, but it's really good news for Air Canada. As for this whole airline that's going to be flying in kids-free zones, um, it's, a, it's a Turkish-Dutch carrier that's going to be flying from Amsterdam to Kyrgyzstan. this one. I know that there's people who would do this and pay a little bit more to sit away from any families uh, with kids. Um, it's There's going to be some people who will say amazing, some people who, who won't. But if you want to pay to sit
0: away from kids, you can do it now on this particular airline. Interesting. Yeah, we'll see uh, how uh, that one plays out uh, and uh, whether or not people are looking and uh, wanting to pay more for that. Uh, Speaking of paying more well, paying less, what are the deals you have for us?
2: Okay, for all those who say it's I mean, I don't know if I'm going to take it on the chin or not, but Maui needs visitors desperately. I mean, the, the fact is, is that tourism there has, you know, there was mass cancellations and now people are losing jobs in addition to having to deal with the fallout from that massive fire in Lahaina. So I am sharing a Maui deal, November the 21st through until December the 9th. I think it's incredible. It's in Kihei, so it is in South Maui, away from West Maui where um, the, the fire is affected. And this is air and seven nights in a condo hotel, eleven ninety nine. dollars the taxes of five seventeen. dollars Prior to the fire, this was about $600 more expensive. Hmm. So um, – Next is Los Cabos, Mexico, and this is for winter dates, January already the 9th through until February 7th, air and seven nights in a four-star beachfront all-inclusive resort, Eleven forty nine, the taxes of $4.43. That has to be booked by October 1st. These are early some early bird specials that are out by one of the Canadian tour operators. The nice thing is a lot of them have these price protection guarantees. So if you book it and it drops. Um, so my advice is no matter where you're looking, book it earlier rather than later. Uh, especially if it's over one of the winter breaks, school breaks or spring break or any long weekends.
0: All right. So that is a good one, too. And then getting back into, well, the cruise season as well. This one is a really interesting cruise, a long one. And it, yeah, it's a long one. But what a cool itinerary. This is an 18-night
2: cruise that does... Alaska, and Japan. So it's May the 8th, and it's an 18-night cruise where you walk on board the ship here in Vancouver, then go up to Alaska, cross the Bering Sea, then visit Japan, ending in Tokyo. It also comes with the beverage package, some specialty dining, Wi-Fi, and a shore excursions credit, $15.99. Keep in mind, it's an 18-night cruise, Hmm. and the taxes are $4.80. I wanted to put that on now because I think that one, we've already had lots of people book it, um, so the details are on the website, but fifteen ninety nine taxes of four eighty for uh, an eighteen
0: night cruise is is a good deal. That is a great deal, and and Claire, just going back when you mentioned Maui, but uh, you and I talked about this as well. That officials in Maui are saying, "Please come," and yes. wanting people to go to the parts of the island where it is still it's still okay, and they need those uh, tourism dollars.
2: Yeah, this is a you know it's a big debate after a. a, a a devastating event and a lot of people won't feel comfortable but the government officials the tourism authorities and the locals who work in the tourism industry want visitors and they want visitors i mean and of course respectfully not going to west island but this is to south island there are so many hotel rooms right now that are vacant and um, by november 21st when this deal starts through until december the 9th um, that even that time period before then,
0: it's desperate times for people there. Hmm. All right. Well, that is good news to get out there and at least let people know about the deals that are available for them. Claire, always
2: good to chat with you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jay. I'll talk to you next week.
0: Thanks for being with us on this Wednesday afternoon. Well, yesterday on the show, we talked a little bit about how one school on Vancouver Island has taken the step of telling students they are not to be on their cell phones during class. When class is in session, the phones either have to be in a container at the front of the classroom or they need to be turned off, at least turned to silent and stowed away in a bag. It's a school in Souk, a high school that took that step with the teachers there saying the class rooms were being disrupted, that students were being far too distracted because of always being on their phones and teachers not being able to figure out really at a glance if students were using the cell phones for something related to the lesson or something completely not related. Well, Bonnie Ledbetter is a professor emeritus in the Department of Psychology at the University of Victoria and is joining us now to talk a bit more about this. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Uh, what are your thoughts on on cell phones and, and the fact that so many kids, especially in the older grades, uh, kids have cell phones? Is there a place for them? Do you think in the classroom?
3: Um, there are all kinds of uh, teaching um, techniques and um, interesting ways of using class, uh, uh, cell phones for learning in the classroom. But um, for non-learning projects, you know, for just texting or uh, conversing with your friends or these kinds of things, there's no place for that in a classroom, in my opinion. I, I really think that it degrades the ability to really be involved in classroom activities, too be part of the debates, the conversations, collaborative learning, engaged in relationships in your classroom, you know, in the, in the present of your classroom. So yes, there are learning purposes, there are reasons to learn things um, through your cell phone, but if that's not the focus of the learning, it's really probably not appropriate. And this idea of, uh, I know whenever we
0: talk about this, there's the argument of, well, so many kids, if not every kid in the class is going to have a cell phone. Does it make more sense to use it as a tool to make it part of that? But I know there's a lot of pushback to that as well.
3: I think there are ways of using it as a tool. Um, I've, you know, know, a professor who used it in a debating situation where people were required to use or text messaging um, to list their points, and then the other team could really look up those points and think about them and list a response, you know. So there are effective ways to use cell phones in teaching. Um, there's There needs to be a purpose for the cell phone through a teaching and learning purpose of the cell phone being in the classroom. Otherwise, they are distractions, you know. They're not the center of learning. So, you know, adults aren't aren't allowed to drive and talk or use a cell phone. Um, so it's the same kind of thing. It's distracting. It pulls away from the kind of learning that is going on, um, hopefully in the classroom. And um, can you imagine being the teacher, <laughs> trying to monitor that? I mean, if anyone who has a teenager and a cell phone at home, you know, think about Keeping them off the dinner table, um, keeping them out of the bedroom so you can sleep, um, and then multiply that by 40 kids in your class or 30 kids in your class. It's it would be impossible for a teacher to um, monitor non non learning cell phone use. Uh, so I, I don't I don't think that should be the teacher's responsibility. If you are using it as part of your lesson, then do that. Um, make sure everybody knows it's being used for part of the lesson, but otherwise there's really, it is distracting. Right. So is it something then that if it
0: is going to be incorporated, then there needs to be a certain structure? Because there's also the concern, and I think we've all uh, kind of fallen into this, in that you you find yourself, pulling your phone out to check something every five minutes or if, if you've forgotten your phone at home suddenly maybe you're sitting in transits or you're sitting somewhere and and it feels so strange because it's not there just as a a fallback to to check it is it, it's, it's something that we don't want children we don't want students to be doing that that if they're going to be using the cell phone whether it's to look something up or to be part of a lesson it needs to be structured and and, and that just for that use
3: yeah obviously you know there's um There are uses for cell phones. Um, There's there's lots of other technology in a classroom usually too. Um, Computers, uh, there are um, iPads, you know, things for looking things up. Um, Personal cell phones where you can do text messaging or um, be looking, scrolling through things or things that distract you from being a participant in your classroom. Um, is what we're talking about here. That's it's not practical uses or learning about technology. It's about using it for non-learning purposes. That that uh, is disturbing, I think, for teachers and for um, students in a classroom.
0: Right. So even something like, say, a group exercise, that it's one thing if the exercise is to look something up and find uh, X many examples of this and research that you would either be looking it up on a computer or a cell phone, as opposed to the exercise is to talk amongst yourselves and to problem solve or to come up with something and something that doesn't need technology.
3: Right. If it, And you know we need to learn how to do that too. We need to be active participants in collaborative learning. Um, There's all kinds of ways of learning things um, within the classroom, and conversation, debate, um, classroom relationships that depend on people being present for them. Mm
0: So do you think, though, it's become so much that that this became an issue for enough teachers that we've seen the province of Quebec is taking a very strong stance against cell phones? Again, we've seen this school on Vancouver Island. The education minister in B.C. was asked about it yesterday and said it's going to be up to individual schools or school districts, but certainly schools can bring in policies and bans on phones if they want. Has it gotten to the point, do you think, where it has just become so intrusive and that's why we're seeing places take action?
3: Yeah, I think it can be intrusive. I mean, we've all been in meetings and things when there's been an accidental uh, cell phone ring or somebody leaps up and leaves because their cell phone rings. I mean, I think it's the same kind of um, lack of courtesy, the same kind of distractions that we experience as adults. And, um, you know, I think that it's very difficult to teach in that context. I have, you know, had experience with youth in... um, even in uh, college courses where cell phones are ringing or somebody's doing something, and then when you call and call on them, they have no idea what you're talking about. Um, I think you know it's um, it's part of the learning process to do without it <laughs> um, and to be part of part of what's going on in the classroom.
0: Right, because like you said too, being in the classroom, and and I think especially in, in younger grades, it's not all about the material that you're learning. You're also learning, aren't you, to be present. You're learning how to converse with people. You're learning how to research, how to have debates, and how to uh, do a a whole number of things uh, without the distraction of a cell phone.
3: Yeah, I think, you know, it's not just content. You're not sitting there listening to, you know, a teacher reading a book or being a deliverer of content. That's not the way most classrooms proceed anymore, and that could be really boring, but most classrooms are much more involved in engaging students in the process of finding information, of thinking about it, of evaluating it, of you know, talking about it together, of being engaged in discussions and in learning things together. There aren't a lot of opportunities for high school students Um, to do that kind of thing with their peers, with their equals. And this is the prime time for really learning how to be, you know, a good contributing member to a group, a person who listens, a person who has ideas. So, you know, we can't think of learning as just having an information processing component that um, we might access through the Internet. We really have to learn more about it. Well, thank you so
0: much for joining us and for talking more about this. I know these conversations are happening at a lot of school districts. So thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.